Hey, good evening to you all. Hope you're doing well. It's good to uh, be together again tonight. Thank you, worship team. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, we want to keep going through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Easter will be coming up soon, and this passage is a passage we'll be looking at each week as we move toward Easter. And so it's a very fitting passage to spend some time in, in depth. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at the first 11 uh, verses tonight. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you receive, which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul here is once again uh, dealing with an issue in the church at Corinth. The book of 1 Corinthians starts out with Paul responding to some reports that he's heard from people at Corinth who are talking about the different divisions there are in the church and things that are going on that need to be addressed. And evidently, the church at Corinth had also sent some questions to Paul. And so he answers those questions with regard to uh, things like the Lord's Supper, things like uh, the spiritual gifts. And now he's talking about the issue of the resurrection. And he's addressing that issue because there's something going on in the church there. We're not sure exactly what all is happening, but it appears that there's one of several things going on. It's very clear that some people... Um, do not believe, for whatever reason, that there is a resurrection of believers. Um, and it may be possible that they also come to not believe in the immortality of the soul. Not only is there not a resurrection of the physical body and life everlasting in that condition, there's not even, for some it appears, maybe, a belief that the soul will continue on forever and ever. But whatever dealing with here, he realizes that the, the most important issue is how all that factors into the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. So if there is no resurrection of the body and no ongoing life, what does that say about the gospel? What does that say about their faith in Jesus and his resurrection? And so the heart of this first portion of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the centrality and the foundational nature of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We like to say here that 
we're to rest in Jesus for our forgiveness, for eternal life, uh, for all that is to come, to rest in Jesus for the love of God for us, the full and lasting love of God. The whole issue of the resurrection, though, would call into question whether or not Jesus would be worthy of our trust. If Jesus died just like everybody else died, if he did not rise from the dead like he said he was going to, and if there is no evidence that he really was who he said he was was and didn't do what he said he was going to do and laying down his life for his sheep and all the other things that he said, if there's no real evidence that that is true, then why would we be here tonight? Why would we be worshiping Jesus if there's no good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And so the issue of the resurrection, the celebration of Easter, is crucial to our faith because if those things aren't true, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, then all of us should just go home. And so Paul is going to argue that in various ways throughout this chapter. But in the process of talking in these first 11 verses about the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus, there's a sense in which he also answers the question, what does it take for someone to actually believe in the resurrection? It's one thing for someone to say Jesus rose from the dead. It's another thing for someone to actually believe that he rose from the dead. So Paul is obviously going to be arguing both of those things, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And in the process, we get some insight into how any of us ever came to believe, really believe, to the point that we would entrust our lives to Jesus. And in that sense, believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So the first thing is, I want to look at the first two verses again. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first answer to the question, how did any of us, come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, or how does anyone come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? The first answer to that question is through proclamation, through preaching. Paul says to them, essentially, in answer to the question, should we believe in the resurrection, he says, well, don't you remember that the gospel that I preached to you was a gospel that was very much about the resurrection of Jesus? He says, now I make known to you It's a way of saying, I'm going to remind you of what I preach to you. It's kind of a rebuke of sorts in a gentle sort of way. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which means good news, the good news that I preach to you. The word preach there means to bring good news that's meant to make someone happy. And so the preaching of the good news, the preaching of the gospel, is meant to actually bring happiness to people. Um, The happiness of knowing that your sins are forgiven or that your sins can be forgiven, and that eternal life is offered to you through the gospel. And he says, don't you remember that you received that gospel? You received it by faith. You believed the good news that I preached. And he says that very gospel is the gospel in which you stand. And that's probably a reference to the fact of standing before God accepted. It's that gospel that you've received that enables you to know that you have peace with God and you stand before God accepted and forgiven. He says, 
by which you also are saved. And that's actually, it could be translated, are being saved, which means there's a sense in which we're saved, we're justified, we're declared righteous before God because of our faith in Jesus. But it's a sense in which we're continuing to be saved, being made more like Christ. It's called sanctification. And he says it's that very gospel that is what God uses to grow you. It's your growing understanding of Jesus and what he's done for you that actually causes you to grow in faith and in hope and in love. And he says, all of this is true of you if you hold fast, if you, if you hold on to the word, the gospel, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, which highlights the fact that there is a kind of believing that can be an empty kind of believing. And we'll talk more about that at the end. But I want to focus on right now just the fact that he says these believers came to believe because they heard the gospel. And Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so how does God bring people to faith in Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection? It's through the proclamation of the gospel. It's not simply the formal preaching of it, but the proclamation of it, the uh, sharing that good news. A great illustration of this and a great illustration of the fact that you don't have to be a great um, communicator, a great preacher to be used by God in sharing the gospel and seeing people come to faith. A great illustration of this is the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Many of you have probably heard that before. I've talked about it before. But he really struggled with guilt and the fear of death and realizing that he wasn't saved and he needed, needed to be saved, but he didn't understand how to be saved. And so one day God, he said in his own words, God graciously sent a snowstorm and I couldn't get any further than this uh, Methodist chapel. He couldn't go to the church that he uh, normally went to or wanted to go to. So he just turned into this Methodist, primitive Methodist chapel. And the uh, regular pastor, preacher had been snowed in. He didn't make it to the chapel. And so uh, the few people that were there uh, decided that some lay person who was maybe a shoemaker or something like that would just stand up and preach because there was nobody else there to preach. And so he picked for his text Isaiah 45:22, which says, Look to me and be, be saved all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon will talk about what happened there. He says this guy uh, knew nothing about preaching, knew nothing about sharing the gospel. All he could do was just kind of emphasize what was in the text. And he said... You know, it doesn't take uh, college education or it doesn't take a lot of wisdom or knowledge or, or gifting or anything to look. You know, looking is a very simple thing, but you have to look at the right place. You have to look to Jesus. And he talks about looking to Jesus on the cross, looking at Jesus in the tomb, looking at, the, at Jesus risen from the dead, and look to him and be saved. And so this preacher is just preaching as simple 
uh, a message as you can, a simple, a gospel message using this one verse of scripture. And Spurgeon said after about 10 minutes, he'd run out of things to say. But then he, I mean, there's only maybe 10 or 15 people there. And so he knew that Spurgeon was a visitor and said, young man, you look miserable. And you've heard the story where Spurgeon says he was right, but I wasn't usually accustomed to people pointing that out in in church. And so the man directly talked to him, spoke to him and said, look, look, look to Jesus. And God, through that man's preaching of the word in in the most simple way possible, opened Spurgeon's eyes. And he said, for for the first time, I felt like someone told me how to be saved, to just trust in Jesus. It wasn't anything that I had to do. I just need to look to Jesus and what he did. It was the preaching of the gospel. He came to faith in the resurrection of Jesus. He did not see the resurrected Jesus physically like Thomas or any of the other apostles, but he saw the resurrected Jesus through the preaching of of the word. Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to say, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so he's beginning to talk about the fact that this proclamation that he is doing and the other apostles are doing and other people are doing is not simply uh, a fabricated story. It's not a myth. It's not fiction. It's not just an encouraging message based on um, self-help ideas. But it's rooted in things that actually happened in history. And so he says the first thing, the most important thing, is to realize that the message we preach is based on real events that took place. So I delivered to you as of first importance or in the first place or at the head of the list... But I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which means the death of Christ is foundational to the gospel. And it was actually something that the Old Testament promised, the Old Testament predicted. And it says that basically Jesus wasn't going to come and die because of his own sin, which is why everybody else dies. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to die being the perfect Lamb of God for our sins. And the promise of that in the Old Testament goes all the way back to right after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, when God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That was a promise that God was going to send a Savior. And that that Savior was going to be bruised by Satan on the cross. But that through that bruising, that seed of the woman being born of the virgin, Jesus was going to crush the head of the serpent. Was going to provide salvation for his people. There's all kinds of verses in the Old Testament that I don't have time to highlight. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament with the killing of lambs and goats and bulls, all of that was a picture of this animal is going to die instead of the worshiper dying. Instead of you dying, you're going to kill this animal. This animal is going to be a substitute 
for you. And it's going to be a reminder of that, of the fact that that's what you deserve. So they were to lay their hands on the animals, confess their sins, and they'd kill that animal. And they were supposed to be reminded every time that that's what my sin deserves. I confess my sins on this head of this animal, and then I kill it because that's what my sin deserves. And Jesus is pictured as the Lamb of God who came to be our substitute, to die in our place. And if we receive him as our substitute, then our sins are forgiven. If we don't receive him, then we have to receive what our just what our sins justly deserve. And so the Old Testament talks about it in so many different ways. Then he goes on to say in verse 4, and that he was buried, meaning he really died. It wasn't just uh, an imaginary thing. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So that not only was the death of Christ prophesied and promised in the Old Testament, but the resurrection of Jesus was also promised as well. One of the interesting things is in Psalm 2, when it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We often think that must be a reference to the virgin birth. But in the book of Acts, it actually is connected to the resurrection. When in Acts chapter 13, it says in the preaching of the gospel there, God has fulfilled this promise to our children that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so in the Old Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is predicted. It's also predicted in Psalm 16, where it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It was understand, understood rather, uh, in the New Testament uh, times that once you got to the fourth day, decay would have set in. And that's why when Lazarus was dead... And he had been in the tomb four days. Martha said, he stinketh. Uh, he's beginning to decay. And yet Jesus raises him from the dead. But Jesus was raised on the third day, which is a fulfillment of the scripture that says he would be raised before his body began to decay. And Jesus himself also said that his the sign that he would give to his generation that he was who he was was that he was going to be three days in the earth before he rose again, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days also. And so the Old Testament, even in various ways, and there are other scriptures we can look at too that talk about this kind of thing, especially Isaiah 53, verse 10, when it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, speaking of Jesus, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. Speaking of the one who's crushed, he would prolong his days, so to speak. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, the one who's been crushed. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. So the very one is, who's crushed by God, his days will be prolonged and he will see the satisfaction of his soul. He'll know that he accomplished what he intended to do by being crushed. And all of that is a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, being pulled together as necessary uh, sides of the same coin. 
it goes on to say, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Excuse me. So Paul is making the point that the gospel is about Jesus dying a death he did not deserve to die because he was sinless, and dying that death in our place, that we might be forgiven, and that the resurrection is essential to testifying to the fact that he was really who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, and that he really did what he said he was going to do, was that he was going to lay down his life in our place, that we might be forgiven. Um, one of the things that's interesting in the book of Luke is that the way Luke starts off his gospel is he starts it off in such a way that he lets us know that what he's writing is an historical account. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So even people who aren't Christians look at the Gospel of Luke and and they will say that he was a first-rate historian, that he is writing history. He's not writing a fictional story. And the truth that he's talking about is the historical reality of what Jesus actually did. And so how does that factor in? How does historical reality factor into us coming to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and entrusting ourselves to him? Well, there's the story of the conversion of Josh McDowell. Many of you may know him, but he tells his story And that when he was a teenager, he just wanted to be happy. And he tried religion for a while. But, you know, he he felt like religion wasn't the answer. So he got into education, thought knowledge was the answer. That didn't turn out to be the case either. But then he met some people on campus that seemed to really have a joy, no matter what was going on in their lives. And he found out that they were Christians. And so he began talking to them, asking them questions. And he was obviously very skeptical because he'd already tried this religion thing. And, but he asked them, so what's the source of your happiness? Why do you have this joy? And they said, because of Christianity. And he said, you know, Christianity is just for unthinking weaklings, uh, not for intellectuals. But he kept talking with them, and he talked to one girl and said, so what is it about your experience that changed your life? And she said, Jesus Christ. And again he said, I've tried religion. She said, I'm not talking about religion. Religion is about trying to earn your way into God's favor. Christianity is about Jesus Christ coming and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so this group challenged him and said, okay, um, you think Christianity is um, for weak people, weak-minded people who aren't intellectual and aren't, uh, don't really look into the evidence? And they challenged him to investigate the historical evidence for the reality of a person named Jesus who actually lived and died 
and the evidence that he rose from the, the dead. He said he spent um, a number of months in research. He was actually a pre-law student, and he understood the importance of facts and historical evidence. The more and more I did this research, evidence in abundance, evidence I could hardly believe with my own eyes. Finally, I could come to only one conclusion. If I were to remain intellectually honest, I had to admit that the, that the Old and New Testament documents were some of the most reliable writings in all of antiquity. And if they were reliable, what about this man Jesus, whom I had dismissed as a mere carpenter? I had to admit that Jesus Christ was more than a carpenter. He was all he claimed to be. And he came to trust in Jesus and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ by looking at the historical evidence that undergirded the proclamation of the gospel. But Paul goes on to talk about the reliable witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus as well. He says in verse 5, And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. That means one born like a, a premature child or a miscarriage, just totally uh, untimely born. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he says, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he appeared to certain select people that God selected. He didn't appear to everybody, didn't appear to Pilate, didn't appear to Herod, didn't appear to everybody in Jerusalem, but he appeared to certain select people. And the people that he appeared to are interesting when you think about who he appeared to. He appeared to someone who denied him three times before he was crucified, Peter. He appeared to those who actually deserted him on the night he was betrayed, all the other um, disciples. He appeared to both individuals like Peter and James, and he appeared to small groups like the Twelve or really large groups like a group of 500 people at one time. He appeared to some that Paul would say are still alive. You can check, check it out if you don't believe me. You can go to people and, and say, did you really see the risen, risen Jesus? Some of these people who saw him in this group of 500 have died They've gone on to heaven, but a lot of them are still around. He also says that he appeared to one of his half-brothers. Jesus apparently had four brothers and at least two sisters. James, who's referred to here, is evidently a reference to James, one of Jesus' half-brothers, so to speak. And none of his brothers believed in him before the resurrection. You can read the Gospels, and they thought he was crazy. But after seeing him risen from the dead, James became the leader in the Jerusalem church. And then finally, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. And he appeared to me. He doesn't go into detail here, but in other places you, recognize, you see 
that he was persecuting the church of God. He did not believe in Jesus, didn't want to believe in Jesus, had no reason in his own mind to think he ought to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he was the Messiah. And he's on his way to Damascus to throw believers in jail so that they can be persecuted and even killed. And on the way to Damascus, the risen Jesus appears to him and he believes. And so Jesus appeared to both friends and enemies. And so it highlights the fact that the people Jesus appeared to, their lives were radically changed. The people like Peter and the other disciples who saw him, when he was crucified, they were hiding in fear. After they see the risen Jesus, they're willing to preach the gospel and to die. Paul is persecuting the church, and then all of a sudden he's preaching the gospel that he once denied and joining with the very people that he had persecuted. And so he, he says that it was through the, seeing the resurrected Jesus that his life was changed. Now some people still want to argue that that's no major thing, but the reality is the Jewish people at that time had no conception of an individual resurrection. They believed in a group resurrection at the end of time, but they had no conception of anyone, one individual person, being raised from the dead before the end of the age. And they had no conception of a Messiah who dies. And so none of them were inclined to believe that Jesus was really... um, the Messiah, and that he was going to rise from the dead. You read the Gospels and you realize that they struggled so much with that idea. And others would say, well, they stole the body from the grave and they made up the story. But people don't die for things they make up. And that's the very testimony um, that we find um, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus Uh, It says that Jesus gave orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And he tells them, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So what is the deal with the witnesses? Lee Strobel, if you read his conversion experience, they went... His wife and uh, moved into an apartment complex in Chicago. Uh, his wife met a Christian in the complex. And they started having tea every day. And, and this Christian woman started sharing the gospel with Lee Strobel's wife. And over about a year of these two meeting together for tea and reading the Bible and, and this lady witnessing to her, she became a Christian. And she walked in one day and told Lee Strobel uh, that she was a Christian now. And he was an atheist. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he said, at that point, I was ready to divorce her. I didn't want to have anything to do with a Christian. And yet, he wanted to somehow save his marriage. So he figured, I can save my marriage if I disprove Christianity. And so he set out as an investigative journalist to research the resurrection, research the witnesses, research the New Testament documents and all those things to disprove the resurrection. 
in order to save his marriage. Instead, God saved him through that whole process. He said, someone asked him, so what was some of the key pieces to this puzzle coming together for you over this long period of time in which you did this research? He said, um, the final puzzle for me was the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus to the point that they were willing to suffer deprivation and even death as a result of their belief that he had returned from the dead and thus proved that he's the son of God. He said, you know what, you understand, you know, kamikaze pilots you know, killing themselves for certain reasons or, or terrorists killing themselves for certain reasons, but they're killing themselves or accepting death under those circumstances because they believe that something is true. They're not making stuff up and then dying for it. And that's the argument. And the, you know, the religious leaders would say they stole the body and they just made up the story. But Lee Strobel said, you know, that doesn't hold any water. People don't function that way. Nobody just lays down their lives and, and um, lets themselves be tortured and get all their possessions taken away for uh, something they know is a lie. And so it was the, the weight of that testimony that actually convinced him of the truthfulness of what they were saying. And so it was the, the testimony of the very people that we're talking about that God used to save Lee Strobel. Because it was a testimony to they must have really seen the risen Jesus for their lives to be so radically changed. But the last point that Paul makes is that you can have um, a clear presentation of the gospel. You can have um, historical evidence to back up that presentation. You can have reliable witnesses to the resurrection, but you still have to have something else. And so in verses 10 and 11, he talks about this because this is right on the, the heels of his own conversion. He's, he's just talked about the fact that uh, Jesus appeared to me last of all. And he will say in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. So basically he's saying the reason why I became a Christian and the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing in moving from the persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am what I am by the grace of God. I give him all the glory for the change that took place in my life. Did it include some proclamation? Yes. Did it include some historical evidence? Yes. Did it include uh, reliable witnesses? Yes. But ultimately it was the work of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God operating in his life. And he says, even the life I live today as I preach the gospel and I plant churches and I lead people to Christ, he says, his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So that even what I'm doing now is still the result of God's gracious work in my life. I take no credit 
for any success I have in preaching the gospel and seeing people like you, Corinth, Corinthians, come to Christ or anyone else. When it speaks of the grace of God, there's two ways in which that's talked about in the scripture. It says undeserved favor. It means that God shows us favor we don't deserve. He blesses us and has mercy on us in ways that we do not earn at all. But it's also used in the sense of God giving us grace to trust and grace to love in ways we would never trust and never love. The last thing he says is, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The interesting thing about all that is um, we can argue that more people would come to believe in Jesus if Jesus, Jesus would just appear to them like he appeared to Thomas or appeared to Paul. And the Corinthians didn't have that. None of us here who are trusting in Jesus, believing that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, none of us have had that experience. The risen Christ hasn't appeared to us, and yet we believe. And so why do we believe? It's because of the grace of God. God's gracious work by his spirit through all of these things, proclamation of the gospel and other things that he uses to do what it says in Ephesians 2. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What does it mean to be saved by grace? God has to raise you from the dead so that you trust Jesus and you see him as the one who died for our sins and who rose from the dead as the Lord of all an able and willing Savior for us who promises us all that our heart desires and all that we need. And until we're raised from the spiritually dead, we don't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, not in any kind of saving way. And so that's the context for Paul saying, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just like God created mankind physically, he creates believers spiritually. It's his merciful, gracious work in our hearts. The conversion of C.S. Lewis is a conversion that pictures this in a wonderful way. He, he talks about um, his conversion uh, where he moved from being an atheist to being a theist to being a, a Christian. And he talks about the part where he actually started believing in God and was on his way to actually believing in Christ. He talks about it this way. He says, C.S. Lewis was a professor in, in England. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling 
Whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, speaking of God, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel them to come in, which is actually a reference to Luke 14:23. Compel them to come in. Properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. God must compel us to come in. We will not come in on our own. We are rebels against God. We are dead in our sins. And Jesus would say at one point to those he was speaking to, you will not come to me, but you may have life. It takes the work of God's grace by his spirit through the truth in our hearts before we will ever do that. And that's why we thank God for our salvation. Is because he deserves our thanks and our worship and our love because of his mercy to us. Well, let me just make some application beyond, beyond what we've already talked about here as we wrap things up. The first thing is... In this discussion of the resurrection and his reminder of how foundational that is, he recognizes that some people were moving away from that. And he says back up in verse 2, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What What does it mean to believe in vain? The idea of believing in vain is the idea... To believe into nothingness. What is he talking about there? Well, there's two things I think that are in view here. Is to is to have a kind of faith that has nothing in terms of saving content. Because the Bible tells us that um, we can have such a faith in Jesus that doesn't acknowledge his death on our behalf or his resurrection, there are actually those who will claim to be Christians who will deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ and will deny the resurrection of Jesus. But they'll still say they believe in Jesus. And so to believe in vain is to have, to lack, rather, I would say, saving content. There are certain things we have to believe in order to be saved by Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. You're saved by the gospel I preached if you don't move away from those essential doctrines like the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why he could say in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, 
your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Notice the phrase, preaching another Jesus. That means if you believe in the Jesus that is fiction, and not the Jesus who is reality, you can't be saved by believing in a fictional Jesus. You have to believe in the Jesus who really is, who is God, fully God, fully man, lived, died, rose again, rule and reigns over everything, and is an able and willing Savior for sinners. And so content is important in order to not believe in vain. So that's part of what I think he has in mind. But I also think he has in mind, there are those who might say, I believe all that. I believe all that is true. But what they lack is a real trust in those truths, a real entrusting themselves to Jesus. One of the most fascinating things in a very sad sense is the uh, life of Judas. Judas, one of the 12 disciples. It says in Matthew 10 that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Then it lists the 12 disciples and Judas Iscariot. It says the one who betrayed him was in that group. And Jesus said to them, go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. So you know what that means? Judas preached that gospel. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the lepers, he cast out demons. He was a part of all those things, one way or the other. He was given that authority and that power by Jesus, and yet he never entrusted himself to Jesus in any any personal way. Regardless of whatever he knew about Jesus... He did not ever entrust himself to Jesus. And so we need to know what the gospel is. We need to know who he is, both God and man. Uh, We need to know what he's done in laying down his life and rising from the dead and being Lord of all and offering us salvation uh, through what he's done. But we also need to entrust ourselves to him. We need to put all our eggs in that one basket and say, if Jesus doesn't save me, then I won't be saved. If Jesus doesn't fulfill my heart's desire for happiness, then I'll never be truly happy. I put all my eggs in that basket, and I trust him. Doesn't mean our faith isn't weak at some times. Doesn't mean we don't struggle at different times. Um, But we still say, I have no place else to go but Jesus. And that leads me to the second point, is that these believers in Corinth were being tested Their faith was being tested. And so Paul reminds them of the gospel, and he's going to argue throughout this chapter for the resurrection of Jesus and how it applies to their lives. And what he's trying to do is to say, let me strengthen your faith because your faith is wobbly, it's weak, you're struggling, you're not even sure believers rise from the dead at some point, which the implication is you're, you're probably even doubting the resurrection of Jesus. So let me strengthen your faith. Faith, because your faith is being tested. 
And it's helpful to realize that it's not unusual to struggle. It's not unusual to realize that our faith is being tested. Um, In the Gospels, it talks about the parable of the soils. For instance, in Mark chapter 4, there's an account of the parable of the soils, which I believe um, talks about a number of different things, pictures a number of different things, but it certainly pictures how our faith can be tested. Let me just very quickly, I don't have a whole lot of time left, but one way our faith is tested is simply by those around us who will deny the gospel, especially if we value their opinion and we value their relationship, that relationship. And so if I have friends, if I have family members who would say, uh, uh, Jesus was a good man, but I don't believe he was the son of God. I don't believe he died for our sins. Um, I, I really question why you're into all this Christianity stuff. That's a testing of our faith. When we have people close to us in various ways that we really uh, want to be close to in various ways, and yet we realize that this is a major roadblock for us and, and for them as well. And so the temptation would be, as Jesus said, is to value that relationship over our relationship with Jesus. And that's why he said, you must love me more than you love your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, or anybody else that you might really value. So there's that temptation, the temptation of what you might say hard hearts around us that just don't believe in the good news. And then there's uh, the reality that there are hard things we go through. There are hard trials that can cause us to begin to question. Just like in the movie, um, God is Not Dead, the professor in that movie early on loses his mother, I think, and becomes an atheist. And it's rooted in the fact that um, in his experience, he had this terrible thing happen, and it caused him to just walk away from anything that he knew about Christianity. And so when it says in the parable of the soils that affliction or persecution can arise and people will fall away, it's a reminder of the fact that hard things, hard trials can really test our faith. And then the third thing is hard truths, that we can encounter things in the Bible that are really hard to wrap our minds around and really hard to think about and to accept. There's a great illustration of that in John chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about the fact that if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you can't be saved. And it says, after that teaching, that many of those who were following him walked away. Now, what they needed to do was to press in and say, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Instead, they said, ugh, I don't want anything to do with anybody who talks that way. Anybody who says we have to eat his body and drink his blood, I don't want anything to do with that. And they left. And so what Jesus was talking about was a hard thing for them to receive. And so what do we do with hard things? We need to press in to truly understand better those hard truths. Just like when we have hard trials, we need to press in closer to Jesus, not run away, so that we can find the answers we need, the help we need in those hard trials. 
The fourth thing would be heretical temptations, the temptation of heresy, which is what is going on here in 1 Corinthians 15. One way or another, they're hearing there is no resurrection of the dead. And the implication is even Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And so that was a heresy. That was a false statement. And their faith was being tested by that. And so if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door or a Mormon shows up at your door, what are you going to be tempted by? Heresy. Things that are not true. And a lot of people who are on the fringes of Christianity one way or another fall into that trap. I mean, I've heard it said that most people who become, go into the Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups like that, tend to be Baptists. Not very well grounded, tempted by those what I would call happy temptations. Temptations to happiness apart from God. Because it says the thorny ground in the parable of the soils doesn't bear any fruit, it doesn't bear any fruit because of the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. So the temptation is to say that what the world offers me is better than what God offers me. So I'll take what the world offers. And so all of those things are a temptation to us, a temptation to not hold fast to the truth and to trust Jesus for what he's promised us. Well, let me just conclude with the third application, which brings us to the very end of this passage where Paul says that um, he is what he is. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God, which is an encouragement to us in that the grace of God can melt the hardest hearts. The grace of God can, can help us when we're really struggling as true believers and the grace of God can save people that we think will never come to Christ, like Paul. We look at some people and say, you know what? I can't ever see that person believing in the crucifixion and the resurrection and giving their life to Christ. Well, there's a story about the rich young ruler. Don't have time to go into all of it, but... Jesus tells him to sell everything and to follow him, and he walks away grieving because he was a rich guy, didn't want to give up his riches. And that's where Jesus says that, truly, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's when the disciples say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with people, this is impossible. What's impossible? to be saved. With people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The grace of God can overcome any opposition, even if you're going around killing Christians, even if your heart is so hard that you wouldn't step foot in a church, even given the opportunity, even if they were going to offer you a million dollars. The grace of God God is able to change hearts. And that's why we pray for people and we never stop praying for people. It's an encouragement. God is amazing in what he can do. So for those of us 
who have been saved and are trusting Jesus, we can thank God that he has done the impossible in our lives. And we pray that he would do the impossible in the lives of those around us. If we're struggling like the Corinthians are with various things, then we can know that God can help us with those struggles, that his grace is sufficient for whatever struggles we might go through, and that he can strengthen our faith and meet us wherever we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would encourage us through it, that we would see your loving, merciful, gracious heart, that we would see Jesus as an able and willing Savior for us. Whether we've never trusted in him or whether we have trusted in him and we just need him to meet us and to help us where we are, we pray that you would show us Jesus in greater, deeper, richer ways that you meet the deepest needs of our heart. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.